0: Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall take a look at the talking points and policy pushes that have kept wages in America artificially low for decades. The circumstances today are almost entirely new, with unprecedented COVID-related upheaval shocking the economy and labor market, but the tactics used to demonize workers and undermine their rights are as old as the Hill's. Clips today are from Counterspin, Citations Needed, The Ezra Klein Show, Pitchfork Economics, and Economic Update.
1: Like I say, my beef with news media's frequent presentation of economics is that it's a dry kind of analytical field where there's a right and a wrong and everyone knows what it is. And it's just a question of how we get to it. When really, eh, there's there's visions involved, you know, it's about how much you value people and how you create an idea of uh, what's acceptable for an economy around that vision of people, you know, so I, I, I just want to drop you right in to to this question that we're now talking about nobody wants to work. Let's let's start with just the data are there more people looking for jobs than can find them? Or is there a labor shortage? Because if I just pick up a newspaper, media are telling me both things.
2: Sure, I think that it's fair to say that there is a labor shortage. What the real debate is about is why there's a labor shortage, why there are businesses that are unable to find the workers that they want. And it's natural, just as uh, anything is natural, to hear business owners complain about, basically, government policies. And in this case, they're complaining about unemployment benefits that they claim are too generous. In fact, there's no data that supports that notion. It's an intuitive reaction by business owners who don't want to pay their employees more and don't want to basically create more welcoming workplaces so that they can attract and recruit more workers
1: well that 's what's so interesting. We have often in the background in news reporting this very one oh one idea of how a capitalist economy works, and you know there's supply and demand and so wouldn't this just be a situation where you know if if workers aren 't filling in that 's because employers aren't 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 um supplying them with conditions that they want to work in. Why does that then get translated into this? Moralistic thing um, about somehow workers are lazy and they don't appreciate what it really means to work and and yada yada yada. If it's dry economics, why isn't it dry economics?
2: Sure, there's there's a long tradition in this country uh, of holding up people who are unemployed or underemployed as the undeserving poor. That if they're not working, it's because of their own moral turpitude, and this is very convenient for employers who want to pay as little as they can get away with, who can offer benefits that are as stingy as they can get away with. But what we've seen, and in fact we've seen this in the last few months, as the economy opens up or tries to open up, is that businesses that actually are willing to pay more, better than than minimum wage or even much better than minimum wage, and are willing to offer decent benefits, they're not having as much trouble and maybe having no trouble recruiting workers to fill the slots they have. So the dime, so to speak, has to drop for these employers. They have to stop blaming the unemployment system for their inability to hire. And, of course, whenever I see these signs posted that say, sorry for the long lines or the low hours at our establishment, nobody wants to work, I think the subtext is nobody wants to work for me. And it may be that prospective workers don't think they're going to be paid well enough. If they're in the restaurant and bar business, it's because they know that these jobs are really shaky, that they can be fired uh, for for no, no excuse, and they're not going to be paid very well to put up with obnoxious managers and obnoxious customers, so they're going elsewhere. What we saw in in this latest jobs report, which, as you said, was a disappointing 266,000 new jobs created in the month of April, is that we actually saw the best growth in low-wage sectors. We saw perfectly good growth in restaurants and hotels and bars, where you would expect that if these lavish, lavish unemployment benefits were really the story, That's where you would see the biggest gaps, but that's not what's happening.
0: What did you see in terms of how these stories were framed in terms of what was being said this past year during the pandemic?
3: Sure. Yeah. So um, there was uh, some evidence that there might have been some upward pressure on wages for restaurant workers right before the pandemic, which, you know, is necessary because their wages were so low. Minimum wages were going up in several jurisdictions. But of course, once the pandemic hit, all these restaurants just summarily laid off all their restaurant workers and everybody just accepts that it happened. They get unemployment, of course, or they should. But um, it's the complete opposite story from what we saw before. And there's much less concern about what's going to happen to all these people that now don't have jobs. And certainly the disastrous way that the U.S. handled the pandemic just prolonged suffering for all these people. But also we still have very high unemployment now over a year after the pandemic started. And it's very hard to say that there's any sort of like sector wide shortage of workers i think i've seen a few you you just mentioned trucking shortages but they're starting to pop up again and it's a kind of a replay of the great recession where Still during the recession, reporters would start churning out these labor market shortage stories. Mm -hmm. To me, it's not reflective of reality if you, you know, are paying attention.
4: Yeah, because again, they go to these employers or industry trade groups and they say, I cannot afford. So Kroger just shut down two stores in California because they passed a law requiring $4 extra and our hazard pay, they said we can't afford it. They always say we can't afford it. They have some, there's some chart they got, some graph they have, and if the line goes over this, they shut everything down and they piss them on and moan and they have a capital strike. They love doing capital strikes because fuck it, they don't care. Walmart does this a lot. <laughs> Walmart will not enter a market, a big city. Because they make demands of big box stores to pay twelve dollars, so or as low as twelve dollars an hour back four or five years ago, mm-hmm. and they'll give up millions in revenue just to say fuck it, so they can have one of their petulant capital strikes because they think in the long term that's in their best interest. So to them, if and there's a viral, there's a viral tweet now where there's a. A fast food restaurant, I think it's it's Burger King, who says, we had to shut down because no, it was Wendy's. Nobody wants to work. And then if someone found their job offering on Glassdoor and it was like $11 an hour, it's all like, no shit. And this, of course, is the theme we're now beating down people's throat in this episode is that it's a wage problem and that they don't want to fucking pay it. And that is not, of course, a labor shortage. Right. <laughs> that is a shortage of what you're willing to pay because it, the way things are framed is always incumbent upon the worker to be flexible, never the employer. And of course, we don't know the bottom line at these places. You know, these these books are private. If they want to come and say, actually, if we raise this by a dollar, Joe Ma, Pa, Subway goes out of business, like, I'll listen to that. It's probably bullshit, but I'll listen to it. There's just this assumption that it's always incumbent upon the worker to take lower wages versus the employer to pay more. And, and I want to talk about, we spent a great deal talking about Mike Rowe, who's I think, one of the biggest conduits of this myth, specifically the skills gap, which he liked to push, which was an effort by some of his billionaire backer Koch brother types with his foundation to push this narrative that he would go at, in 2009, 2010, he'd say, we're in the middle of a recession and I go by and I see these signs says, Hire, you know, now hiring, they can't fill these roles. He loves to tell this anecdote. It's total horseshit, but he says it anyway. And like the assumption, there's two things. Number one, it asserts the fact that that, and this was his primary goal, which is to get the Obama administration, at, and at that point, the Mitt Romney, a future Mitt Romney administration, is why he campaigned for him, to basically subsidize vocational training so the fucking coke industries didn't have to pay for it. <laughs> and also the more, of course, trained people they have, as we've talked about now a million times, the more trained people they have, the more workers they have, the lower wages they have to pay. So it's a no-brainer on their part. But one thing it does play into is this kind of moral narrative that I want to talk about, which is one of the reasons I think the media soaks it up, which is that Americans are lazy – that were spoiled, fat, ungrateful, mm-hmm. lazy—all of which is true for me personally, but everyone else, I don't think—and <laughs> especially really the case.
0: millennials who are who are ruining work.
4: There's this subtext, and oftentimes even text about this sort of American lazy worker, and that, of course, plays into this idea that there are a bunch of ingrates who won't do the work necessary. I want you to talk a bit about this kind of moral subtext and, and how much you think this drives this coverage of these labor shortages.
3: Yeah, I think these narratives are driven by elites. And the example you gave of COVID is a good example of the wage conditions changing. You're going to have to pay somebody who works in a restaurant or who is a line cook or whatever more money to work because it's now a dangerous job. And they just don't want to accept that they have to pay this premium on top of the wages they're accustomed to get people to Work So it's a lot easier to demonize people and say you should be taking this job instead of taking unemployment. We should have an unemployment amount that's adequate for everybody. And then we should have employers that are paying wages that incorporate all the requirements of the job. I don't know many people who write these stories that would want to go be a line cook in a restaurant if that was the only job they had available to them. During a pandemic, because it's just not worth the risk to their health. So essentially, they're saying that people who aren't in high paying jobs or have the same socioeconomic status to them should accept greater risks and then just deal with it because they need people to serve them their burrito at Chipotle or whatever. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's a very offensive argument because there should be a basic level of safety at every job but it doesn't stop them from making the argument. One thing we do have a shortage of is doctors and that was even clear pre-pandemic. Doctors are paid an absurd amount and they have a, you know, association that basically keeps the supply low. And I never hear people who are telling somebody to go to work at a restaurant for $5 an hour plus tips also to say that we need to increase the supply of doctors because they provide vital services and we need to pay them less, but it's the same issue except there actually is a shortage of doctors. So there's this class solidarity. We should be paying these people who are educated and doing good work in obscene amount of money because they do provide services for us, but these other people who I also need their services They're either lazy or they have some other moral failing for
0: not taking this job. Kevin, what do you think is a more responsible way that journalists can cover these stories, the frameworks that reporters and editors can use to really center workers or even, dare I say, the quote-unquote consumer in these stories rather than the lobbyists, the bosses, the boards of industry.
3: Sure. Yeah, I would. I would say that labor shortages do happen, but they usually happen in either small towns where you literally can't find anybody, or they happen in crises like this one, or in certain areas, or for example, or during with, World War. But people need to sort those out from ones they're talking about huge industries. They need to look at the data. If wages aren't rising, then there's probably not a, a labor shortage. And I think they need to understand the history, especially since this break in the 1970s, where we've seen productivity go up. So companies are getting more out of every worker, but wages have been stagnant, where unions have been decimated. And they need to put that into context because even if we are paying a lot for somebody to be a barista or other very valuable jobs that all of us rely on, it's not necessarily a bad thing. Workers need desperately need wages to go up because over the last 50 years or so, they've been relatively stagnant. So I think when you put that into context, you get a much more sympathetic story about employment in the U.S. and workers in the U.S. And I think that's the necessary other side of this story that every sort of neutral reporter has to report on. If you don't have that viewpoint in your story, I don't think you're even trying to be objective about it.
0: Can you talk a bit about the practice of insulting the meat?
5: This is the other great egalitarian device in genre life. In the genre world, people don't place a great deal of store on material resources. Things are shared relatively easily and evenly. Um, demand sharing is not a cause of tension. But one thing in the jungal world, which is loved above all others, is meat. And it's one of the few things that inspires people to jealousy, to anger, if they feel a little bit left out. And it is also one of the few things that if somebody is too productive in bringing meat, if somebody's too good a hunter, then there's a risk that person starts to accrue additional social capital as a result of that, to accrue power, just simply because they're the bringer and the distributor of meat. And so what they do is they have a number of customs around one, the distribution of meat, and two to how to deal with the hunter themselves in order to manage any kind of tensions that might emerge from this. So when a hunter comes back with a kill, and in particular, if it's a spectacular kill, like something huge, like a giraffe or a Elon bull. The hunter will not be praised in the way that we generally expect. And imagine the hunter coming back with his trophy. (laughs) Ha ha, everybody's going to get fed. Everybody's going to be wonderful. Pat me on the back and now I'm the hero for the night. Instead, the hunter is mocked and insulted and it's done in a kind of light-hearted way, but also with a little bit of an edge. And the hunter, for his part, is expected to behave with great humility. And the kinds of insults that will be, everybody knows it's a performance, a charade, because if a giraffe shows up, it's a big piece of meat. No whole band's going to struggle to eat the thing over the course of a few days, but they'll still say, ah, this giraffe, ah, the meat smells like urine, ah, it's not enough to even feed my mother-in-law. And they're Insults come out again and again and again and again over the course of the consumption of this animal. And the reason they do this is to avoid the hunter accruing any unnecessary hierarchy, any unnecessary authority over others, and any socially destructive authority over others. There's a wonderful quote again by Richard Lee where man describes the basis behind the practices we use it to cool young men's hearts. And in this way, successful hunters were in effect encouraged or discouraged from hunting excessively. Now, bizarrely, because in hunter-gatherer bands everybody liked me, you wanted to discourage the good hunters from hunting too much. Um, But at the same time, you didn't want the incompetent ones going out or the elderly going out and being unsuccessful all the time. So they had other methods of actually distributing the responsibility for that meat. So technically, the owner of an animal that was killed was actually not the person who killed the animal and brought it home, the one who effectively did the hard work, but actually the person who made the arrow. And as a result, that meant that in our communities, the elderly, the club-footed, and all the rest could occasionally claim to own an animal themselves and have the added burden of responsibility of distributing the meat and enduring insults.
0: So this falls on our ears, my ears, very strangely right? It defies almost everything you would think about motivation and how you get people to do difficult tasks and excel at them. So in this world where you're a hunter and you bring down a giraffe and then you come back and everybody insults you and somebody else gets to distribute the meat because it was their arrow and not yours, why be a hunter? What is the implicit theory of motivation to do things that are valuable for society but scarce in their skill set within these groups.
5: This is one of the wonderful things about looking at the idea of work as we go into our deep history and actually even beyond the genre, I see, into our evolutionary history. It's pretty clear that we have evolved to love work in a very basic sense. We have evolved to become these extremely purposeful, focused species with this extraordinary array of skills and flexible devices from our hands to our incredibly plastic brains that, in a sense, need to be fed. There's a reason why when we are stuck in solitary confinement in prison for something, that boredom eats us up. It's because we can't Basically, apply these extraordinary skills we've evolved to have. And people get extraordinary pleasure out of doing work. And it can often be different kinds of pleasure. Now, in the Zhinois case, let's take the example of hunting. Hunting is extraordinarily fulfilling work, it is very satisfying. It engages your mind, it engages your intellect, it engages years of acquired and accumulated skill, it engages your intuition, it engages your. Physical strength, it engages your stamina, and it engages you emotionally because you have this huge empathetic connection with the animals that you're pursuing. It is deeply and profoundly satisfying, and in the end, it turns into meat in your belly. It fulfills you quite physically at the end as well. There was one gentleman hunter put it to me. He was like he. So at the hunting makes my heart happy, my legs heavy, and my belly full. It is profoundly satisfying work. And it's obviously part of our evolutionary heritage, this ability to work efficiently and to apply our skills to acquiring the food, first of all, that we need, because that is the primary job of life, to get the food and energy into our bodies in order to grow and reproduce. And then when we have surplus energy, we clearly use those same skills that have empowered us to be such versatile, flexible hunters, foragers, understanders of an environment. We apply those skills to many other things, like creating music, creating art, telling stories, and so on. And this is, work is very much part of who we are. And when we are deprived of the ability to work, we are miserable, we are listless, we are bored, we are uncomfortable and in many senses life is not worth living.
1: And we've also seen in terms of the analysis a kind of like covid exception, you know, which is maybe maybe it's not generous, which, you know, you have to snicker at generous, the idea of generous unemployment benefits, um, but that those might not be why some people are not seeking work, but some news accounts are saying, well, maybe they have somebody sick at home, maybe it has to do with coronavirus, or maybe their kids aren't back in school full-time yet, and they still need to be at home to care for them.
2: Yes, that's right. There are a lot yeah. of reasons yeah. why people... Workers who are unemployed at the moment may be reluctant to take jobs, especially low-wage jobs and difficult jobs and arduous jobs, Um, and they include fear of catching the virus at at their workplace, either from their coworkers or from their customers, an inability to find childcare. Or to afford child care, we're still in a stage where not all schools are open. I think there are more, more students that are still learning remotely than there are going to class. And of course that means that their, their parents, either or, or both parents, don't have the flexibility to take any job that's offered. So there are a lot of reasons and what's striking is that when you read a lot of these newspaper reports or watch television clips and what have you, it's always the unemployment benefits that are named first and these other factors that are also in the background. You know, I would point out that if you look at these news articles and news clips in which business owners are claiming that it's all about unemployment benefits, you never see a worker actually being interviewed. Mm -hmm. You only see business owners basically talking their own self-interest. Now, there's only one newspaper article I've seen that actually covers both sides of it. It was a recent article in the Washington Post out of Florida, which pointed out not only are these other factors in play, but the number of restaurants and bars opening in Miami is at an all-time high. So there's a lot of demand for workers, and maybe not every restaurant can fill all of its slots because it's got competition for workers who, who will work. So basically, there's a myth out there that it's all and only about unemployment benefits. What's really harmful is that we have some governors who are taking this as read and are cutting unemployment benefits for workers in their states, supposedly to get them back to work. And we've seen this now in Montana and North Carolina, and, and more states are already lining up. And I think we're going to see a lot more of this in red states. When I wrote my last column about this, it was only Montana and South Carolina. As of today, we now have Arkansas joining the club and and undoubtedly we'll have more because it's an easy, intuitive meme to throw around that, oh, these people are just sitting around at home because they're lazy.
1: One person said, you know, it's it's uh there's no incentive to go to work when they can stay on the couch, which I just think would just would just shock and amaze uh so many people who are struggling, you know, with being out of work, being underemployed, with having children to care for, with having, you know, the idea that they're sitting on the couch. I just think is just amazing, you know, and you point to and uh, the importance of sources as well as ideas in terms of the impression that that media give. I, I guess one of the things I'm concerned about is that there seems to be a kind of idea that among the most critical uh, news coverage, it's maybe there was something about global pandemic that made the economic system suddenly not work for people or suddenly not work for women, you know, or you could say, you know what, people have always had somebody sick at home, people have always had a kid who needs care, you know, I feel like you can either say, our perfect system broke down in a crisis, or you can say this crisis has exposed that our system is flawed and has problems in it. So I guess I'm concerned about the economic takeaway from COVID's impact on the economy.
2: Sure. What we've seen from the very beginning of this pandemic and the very beginning of the shutdowns and the lockdowns is that the United States, in terms of how it treats its, its workers, particularly its frontline workers, the essential workers, as we keep hearing them labeled, is that the safety net for the working class is far inferior to the safety net that we see in European countries and Asian countries. In this country, it's very rare for a working class employee to have access to sick leave. This became an issue starting very early in the pandemic when we actually wanted people to stay home to reduce the transmission of this virus. And we discovered that most people can't afford to stay home because they don't have sick time coming to them. The United States is far behind other countries in providing for child care for working parents. That's still the case. It's still the case that sick leave is rare. Even among the professional class, sick leave is not really very generous in this country. So these are all flaws in the system that emerged as the tide went out due to COVID. And the question is, are we going to do anything about it? Or are we going to continue to complain about this mythical, lazy worker and show how insulting and demeaning we can be in talking about the working class?
6: Yeah, let's start at the top with what are the policies that have had the biggest effect? The sort of three biggies um, are one is what I would call the sort of either the intentional engineering or the toleration of excess unemployment for most of the past 40 years. And that comes in two variants. One variant is the economy gets into a recession and policymakers are just way too they don't try hard enough to get us out of it, don't try hard enough to get us to sort of full recovery. I think that's the really good description of what happened over the past you know, 12 years after the Great Recession, just sort of no urgency at all in trying to use fiscal policy to, to get the economy back where it was. I think in an earlier period, the real culprit was the Federal Reserve. Basically, they would see a recovery start to happen, unemployment would start to fall. And then in the name of fighting inflation, but often like a completely phantom inflation and inflation in their models, but one that had not appeared in the real world yet, they would engineer by raising interest rates, higher unemployment to really sort of sap workers, bargaining power labor market. So that engineering and toleration of excess uh, unemployment, that that's a really big one. Second, really big one is just the all-out assault on workers' right to bargain collectively and deform unions um, that has happened over that period, leading to a much smaller share of workers who are in unions. And this has two effects, obviously. One is people who are once in a union and now aren't, so they no longer get that union wage premium mechanically. But then also just big sectors of the economy that once had their wages influenced by the unionized part of the sector um, so you had a bunch of non-union workers who actually lost out because their sector was no longer unionized. There was no longer that threat effect on their own employers. Even if they were never union, maybe they always had to pay slightly better wages. So that sort of de-unionization effect is another biggie. And then the effect of sort of globalization on the terms we did it, which is sort of the terms of trade agreements that basically put frontline workers in the United States in sort of complete competition globally with the the labor markets around the world, but carved out a bunch of protections for sort of corporate profits and very highly paid professionals. Those three things combined are a really big chunk of the story, like well over half of the overall divergence we find. And then we've got, you know, a host of policies along the way as well, basically employers waking up every day to find a standard or institution that actually provided a little bulwark to employers power and to employees power in the labor market they tried to you know focus on like a laser and take out the fact that these policies individually and collectively worked to suppress wages over 40 years that wasn't like incidental it wasn't like oh we were doing this for this other reason and oh by the way unfortunately it happened to suppress wages uh you basically conclude that well that's the intent of these policies um which is to uh, suppress wages. explain
0: explain why, like with the with the federal Reserve's actions, why it is that they were so eager to um, pull back the economy when unemployment
6: started to drop? Yeah, we're pretty confident in the intent here for a couple of reasons. I mean one, like on on the easy issues, like the fact that the minimum wage was just throttled for almost decades at a time as inflation just battered its purchasing power or the assault on unions there's obviously a group of employers who just make higher profits because minimum wages are lower or they don't have to deal with the unionized workforce i think the the slight puzzle is why did many sort of all the way even on the center left why were they okay with some of these policies and i think even in that case like The predicted distributional effect of these changes was never in dispute or in doubt like you lower the minimum wage low wage workers do worse you you block the ability to form unions unionized workers and the people who work in those sectors they're going to make less the claim was always that you know there's yes there's going to be some regressive distributional outcome but these are frictions that keep the economy from operating more efficiently and as these frictions are removed Aggregate growth is going to leap forward so much that people are actually going to be better off. Like their relative slice of the pie might shrink, but their overall amount of the pie will grow because of this aggregate growth. And in that case, they've just failed miserably. We've actually had slower growth at the same time. We've had a lot less equal growth. I think the case of the Federal Reserve is the the one that doesn't fit this perfectly. Like I think um, it's the one policy where I think you could quibble a little bit with the intent, but I, I think the dynamic is still there. Everybody knows that all else equal low unemployment is good. And with the sort of last hired first fired dynamic in labor markets, where historically discriminated against workers are, are the last ones to see gains from really low unemployment. Everyone knows that low unemployment, you know, it's not just good, it's also progressive. And so there must have been some justification for why aren't we trying to maximize how low we can make unemployment go. And their argument in real time would have been, well, the 1970s showed us that inflation is a genie that's always trying to storm out of the bottle. And if we ever let it get a foothold in the economy, we're going to have to engineer a really bad recession. So we have to keep unemployment at this pretty high level all the time to keep that that inflation genie in the bottle. But I think it fits in the overall rubric of all of them. Yes, this is bad for some workers, but it's going to be good because it's going to unleash overall growth. And in every case, that overall growth argument has turned out to be a huge failure as well.
1: COVID laid bare a number of conflicts, hypocrisies, and frank inequities that normal times and corporate media kept hidden from some. Perhaps most depressing, the pandemic saw media openly suggesting that some workers could be both essential and expendable. Some faceless thing called the economy could demand that people return to work, but would not be responsible for protecting their lives and their health when they did. Other countries were guaranteeing wages while encouraging workers to stay home to protect their lives and those of others, but avert your eyes from those examples. Those models are not for us. In the U.S., the economy simply had to restart though it necessarily meant picking sides in a battle that one New York Times headline described as lives versus livelihoods. A moral trade-off, the paper called it. Well, important to maintaining the idea that such a trade-off is necessary is obscuring, erasing, and denigrating other economic models. Jessel Noor has been looking at co-op businesses, specifically during the pandemic. He's senior reporter at the Real News Network, and he joins us now by phone from Baltimore. Welcome to counterspan Jessel Noor.
7: It's great to be back.
1: Corporate. Media report the crises of corporate capitalism as flawed, and yet still this only game in town. They allow debate, but only up to a point when you start asking questions about the structure. And that's why it's so valuable to dig into other structures that exist. Co-ops are facts on the ground. You can't say, well, if the workers were the owners, they would be lazy because there are real world examples. So I just wanted to start you off by saying, what did you learn from this project on co-op workers? And specifically, what did those workers tell you about their pandemic experience?
7: Yeah, and I I really appreciate the invitation to have this important conversation, because a lot of what I ended up doing was media analysis in this project, because before I started this project, I was reporting on how other businesses and institutions dealt with the pandemic. And you're absolutely right. What workers were told, what the public was told was that there is this choice. You can keep the economy going or you can keep people safe. You can't do both. So that's one of the reasons I wanted to look at how worker cooperatives respond to the pandemic. They've been around for decades and fundamentally they work within the capitalist system, but their top priority is in profit. So they are businesses. They are for-profit businesses. They are seeking to make a profit. But because the workers are the owners, they're not going to put profits in a higher importance over their lives. That's a deeply profound thing in our American society, where profit is God, where Jeff Bezos is God, where he gets thousands of these articles talking about how much his wealth has increased during the pandemic alone, and very few people are asking. What cost does that come with? What was social cost does it come with to have this massive concentration of not only wealth and power? So the amazing thing about cooperatives is that even though they are small businesses with owned by workers for the large part that come from communities that don't have a lot of wealth, most worker cooperatives in America are, and I'm talking about specifically democratically controlled workplaces. They are in frontline sectors. They are in service sectors. It's low wage work. It's not going to generate massive amounts of wealth, but you can have a workplace with dignity. You can have profit sharing. You can have a living wage. And these are all things we are told that you can't have in America. You can't have a profitable business while also protecting their workers. Mm -hmm. And so when these businesses were confronted with the same challenges other businesses were facing, where you had CEOs telling workers to go into the warehouse, no matter how many people were getting sick, ignoring... Like in Amazon's case, ignoring the thousands of workers that got sick, that maybe the dozens that died. When you have CEOs and managers making a decision and they're not accountable to the workers, they're going to make very different decisions than democratic workplaces where the workers can make their own decisions, can vote, debate and decide, you know, what is best for them and the business. And it turns out that by taking those steps, you're Business has a better chance of succeeding. There's reports of 100,000 small businesses closing because of the pandemic. And according to the figures and the numbers we have so far, what we know, worker cooperatives fared much, much better. There was 60 worker cooperatives that work with a loan fund called Seed Commons, and none of them closed permanently due to the pandemic. The worker owners at these cooperatives were able to work together. They still face challenges. Many of them had to close temporarily, Or had to pivot their business models, but they were able to stay open. They were less likely to lay off their workers, and they prioritized public safety, their workers' safety, and keeping their businesses sustainable. That all goes to say that basically what you raised, this lie that we've been taught, that it's profits and nothing else matters, is wrong. Even in our current society, even with this inequality, we can have successful businesses that exist that pay a living wage and that can treat their workers with the respect they deserve. And, and, and as you mentioned, these are the heroes. These are frontline workers that were, there were placards and billboards made, for, you know, created to honor them, quote unquote, while they were still being given substandard wages not given PPE, not given sick leave. And these are all things that worker co-ops provide.
1: Let me just say, I think part of the story that media tell is that it's business owners versus workers, and yet I've spoken to numerous business owners and small business owners who aren't about that, as you're just saying, and who recognize that if their workers can buy food and buy clothing for their kids, they're more likely to stay at the job. It's all very simple. If you just think about it, and yet we're overcome with a narrative about a conflict between profitability and workers' lives that doesn't really exist. So in other words, it's part of about who people listen. It's part of about who gets to speak in the media. So I guess I just want to ask you, as a media person, as well as a person who's been researching co-ops, what would be the translation? What could journalists do that would lift up this model, that would complicate the narratives that major news media are telling about the economy, what would the intervention of actually knowing about cooperative businesses, what could that do?
7: So on a very simple level, one thing I was struck by when there was reports all across the country, I was looking at newscasts from local TV stations, where they were talking about this worker shortage. And all the people they interviewed, and I watched dozens of these broadcasts, Almost every single person they interviewed was a business owner, in some cases, small business owner. You can talk to workers. You can talk to people that don't want to work for low wages and put their lives on the line for minimum wage and no benefits. On a simple level, talk to workers. And if small businesses or restaurants are facing challenges in hiring workers at this current time, find a local worker cooperative in your area or any business that pays a living wage that has benefits, that has some type of profit-sharing or democratic control of their workplace. Are they facing the same challenges? If not, then maybe you're onto something. (laughs) What the workers told me is that it doesn't feel like a job in the traditional sense when someone is a master over you, over your your work, when you are your own boss, when you get to create the job, you get to create the working conditions, and you get a share of the profit at the end of the day. That's something that most jobs won't offer. And I think the biggest part of that is just bosses being unwilling to give over control and thinking that they know what's best for their workers, what's best for their business. And cooperatives prove that the people that are actually doing the work that the bosses and CEOs are profiting from, they actually know a little bit about what it takes to run this business. And having a say and having power can be transformative. Yeah. So talk to workers, talk to worker owners, talk to people in cooperatives and see if if their perspective is different than what CEOs are telling them.
8: It is with great pleasure that I welcome to our cameras and to our microphones an old friend of mine, Professor Manny Ness. He's a professor of political science at Brooklyn College, which is a part of the City University of New York, and he also is a senior researcher at the University of Johannesburg in South Africa. He has written prolifically on labor, globalization, Migration, the gig economy, and protest movements across the world. His most recent book, and why he's with us today, which is to talk about it, is called Organizing Insurgency Workers' Movements in the Global South, published by Pluto Books. In this new book, let's get right to it. You say something about the Global South, and I want to press you to just define that so we're all on the same page. You say that the workers in the global south, quote, hold up the world. What do you mean?
9: That, of course, is a Greek
8: metaphor. The
9: the Greek uh, god Titus, who lost a major battle and, as a consequence, had to hold up 90% of the world, including his own world. And so I thought it was a very fitting way of evoking the nature of the global economy and the political structure that exists today that the majority of the working class in the world who live in parts of the world that produce commodities, that produce food, that produce almost anything that we consume, live in places like India, South Asia, East Asia, of course, China, and elsewhere. And so I think it's a, a crucial point to make that, in fact, without the working class. And by this, the, the working class that exists throughout the world. We here in North America, Western Europe, and parts of Northeast Asia would not have the lifestyles that we have that also includes parts of the working class that are in the upper echelons of the working class in this country. So I, when we think about workers' solidarity, I think we must recognize those people who hold up the world. They're holding up the incredible force of the society through producing incredible goods, creating pollution in their own countries that are consumed here and polluting here. And they're crucial, but yet they are in fact important to recognize in terms of changing the world toward
8: socialism, which is something that I think we have to fight for. Tell me, you you title your book insurgency. Is it a reasonable Inference to draw that you believe and your research shows that the workers of the global south, whom you've just described, are in a state that we can call insurgency. And if you think that, tell us what that really means in terms of what you found. Rick, absolutely. In my view, workers are always in a
9: state of motion, whether it is resisting the boss, whether it is organizing into a union or trying to whether uh, it's organizing into a protest and a social movement. Workers are constantly in a process of struggle against uh, their employers and their oppressors. This is not something that is unique to the global South. It's something that extends to the United States and and Europe, etc. And doing a lot of research over the last 15, 20 years, more specifically in the South or in, in, in countries of Africa, Asia particularly, as well as South America, I have found that workers are always in a state of motion. They're constantly in, 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 in struggle against their bodies. What is missing? So in other words, this idea of insurgency is something that is a constant. And I think people don't recognize that. We went through here the Occupy movement. There was an insur- That's an insurgency. There was uh, the Arab Spring and countless other movements. We now have Black Lives Matter. It's crucial. Without organization, these insurgencies will lead to nothing. And by that, a a working class socialist organization that has a commitment and principled analysis and uh, program for social transformation.
8: There are quite a few people who believe that this is the missing link or the missing element, if you like, everywhere in the world. In other words, that socialism is, at this point in world history, insurgent, perhaps, everywhere, but well-organized, almost nowhere. And that this contradiction or this dichotomy, is this something—do you find this as well? Is this part of what you're seeing? Insurgency, prolific, but organization— deficient.
9: Precisely, Rick. I I absolutely see that. In fact, that's the reason why I went to places where there was organization, where there has been lasting and durable organizations that are revolutionary, that believe in a, a future of socialism and let's face it, socialism is something that we have to build. Workers will be fighting for an engagement struggle, as you very well know, all the time. So will, so will the bosses. We have to have an organization that will be as strong, if not absolutely stronger than the bosses, because the bosses will continue to fight even after socialism. This we learned from Marx. We learned from Marx and, and Engels and Lenin and many of the leading classical scholars, as well as the contemporary ones. And we have to stop this confusion that we have today about taking solace in the fact that people are organizing. They've always been organizing. And I found in places like the Philippines, in places, parts of India and South Africa, to be the seeds of what we could look for in the future.
0: We've just heard clips today starting with Counterspin in two parts discussing the insidious talking point of the undeserving poor. Citations Needed explained that labor shortages are almost always more accurately described as wage shortages. The Ezra Klein Show looked to anthropology to understand humans' deep connection to and need for meaningful work. Pitchfork Economics explained the policies that have been intentionally keeping wages low for decades— Counterspin looked at how co-ops responded to the pandemic when the workers themselves were in charge of deciding how to manage the crisis, and Economic Update with Richard Wolf pivoted to a global perspective on how the global South has had their wages suppressed in much the same way that the working class in America has. That's what everyone heard, but members also heard bonus clips from Citations Needed, continuing their discussion on how the suppression of wages and demands to repeal regulations are only there to boost profits. Pitchfork Economics zeroed in specifically on the refusal to raise the minimum wage in the U.S. to see the impact it's had on keeping wages low, and The Ezra Klein Show discussed more about how humans have adjusted to a labor-intensive lifestyle in the wake of the advent of agriculture. To hear that and all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly into your podcast feed, sign up to support the show at bestofleft.com support or request a financial hardship membership because we don't make a lack of funds a barrier to hearing more information. Every request is granted, no questions asked. And now, we'll hear from you.
7: Hey, best of the left. It is Dave from Washington. Jay, I just wanted to comment on your thoughts uh, related to the relevance of the word blog. I think that blog is about to have a renaissance uh, in use. And this is entirely true due to the uh, groundbreaking new media enterprise, which you know is still not largely known, but from the desk of Donald J. Trump, which is, maybe it's more like a live journal. Maybe live journals do for a renaissance based on that new and exciting piece of... Media that is coming into the world.
10: Hi, Jay. This is Bud from uh, Idaho. I was listening to your podcast about, I think it was called The Invisible Burden of Racism. Or anyway, it was The Burden of Racism. And uh, the two women who were talking about their names stuck out quite a bit to me. I go by Bud. Uh, my name is Walter, which is not not hard to figure out but I have between that and a complicated last name I have some sympathy and some empathy for people who have uh, names that are difficult for others to pronounce. I've also worked in the uh, at the uh, Navajo uh, Hopi reservation in northern Arizona and the Hopis especially have uh, long last names with many syllables and I was just determined to get them right. So the idea that the women felt burdened because other people had difficulties pronouncing their name. I get that. I get that. But I also find that making an effort, a good faith and successful, preferably uh, successful effort, to uh, pronounce somebody's name correctly is a way of uh, respecting them. And I know that uh, it would frustrate me when people would pronounce my last name wrong. My last name has been pronounced so many different ways uh, and spelled so many different ways It's it's kind of hilarious. I just laugh now. After 63 years, I'm starting to used to it. But like I said, I do I sympathize uh, and I, I found their conversation a little bit frustrating because I thought it was a, a sign of respect to make an effort to pronounce somebody's name correctly and now I hear that uh, it puts a burden on them. So it it kind of leaves me at a uh
0: Thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line or wrote in their messages to be played as voicemails. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can record a message at 202-999-3991 or write me a message to j at bestofleft.com. First of all, Dave from Olympia, for those who don't know, he he lives in a bit of a time warp. He's always three to six weeks behind the news, and uh, and so he, he clearly called in as soon as he heard my mention of the sort of antiquated nature of the term blog and all i can say is boy is he going to be heartbroken when he hears the next episode and learns that i made the same reference to donald trump's blog in the context of the fact that it's already been shut down so if you um if you want to send your condolences to to Dave to help uh, cushion that blow, he'll receive them in three to six weeks. But uh, we also heard from talking about difficult names or names that people in society generally perceive to be difficult. First of all, his connection went bad in the last 20 seconds or so. So, you know, apologies. We couldn't hear how he finished up, but we pretty much got the point, I think and i have some clarification i think that i can i can distinguish between what was being discussed on the show about racism between the two women discussing how frustrating irritating it is to have their names particularly the names that they consider to be relatively simple to be mispronounced So frequently that they actually prefer to go by nicknames with the general public while only their friends know how to pronounce their real names. The difference between that and what Bud is describing. So struggling with a name, but putting in genuine effort and not just to get it right, but also a real concerted effort to make sure that you remember it correctly and say it correctly going forward is very different than... What the women were describing largely, there was a lot of discussion about assumed difficulty and sort of expressing that as sort of an imposition being put on people or an irritation that that people were feeling having to try to pronounce a name that they perceived to be difficult. And then beyond that, not bothering to try to work to get it correct. I mean, th- this is a spectrum here, and I think that the the women, what they were describing, were sort of more the extreme versions of what goes badly, but how the regular experience of those very negative situations colors other experiences as well. But here, let's see if we can wade our way through this. So I also happen to have a name that has been mispronounced my whole life, but no one has ever gotten exasperated at me about it. So my name has nine letters and three syllables. People look at it and they just think, oh no, am I going to be able to figure this out? And they sort of assume it's going to be hard, but I still have a lot going for me. It is a very English sounding name. And it is made up of sounds that sound very familiar to English speakers. So it doesn't obviously sound foreign. So it's long, but it just doesn't sound foreign. And that hits people in a different way, I think. So when people get that sort of instant frustration about hard names that are not only hard, but also sound foreign, there is an element of racism or culturism That plays into that. And so that ratchets up the whole dynamic, you know? So I have no doubt that most people who have the experience being discussed by those two women on the show would agree with Bud's general idea that if a person not only makes a good faith effort to pronounce their name, but does it in a way that doesn't show irritation or frustration and after learning the correct pronunciation really makes the effort to say it correctly, then it would be seen as a sign of respect. I do think that most people would agree with that. I have no doubt that Bud got a good response from the native people on the reservation, as he described. He was obviously trying very hard to be respectful, was making a great effort, and very much wanted to get names correct, and I'm sure that was appreciated. The problem is that the vast majority of people don't do that, which makes it natural for the expectations of a person with a so called difficult name to be low and for their irritation level to be high when having one's name frequently mispronounced. And this is what I think is most important because Bud expressed frustration in hearing that clip. And this is what's important the irritation that people have because their expectations are low and their frustration levels are high. That needs to be okay with us. If we, people like Bud and I, white dudes, if we make a good faith effort to get a name correct, that is difficult to us and we're attempting to be respectful, but the response we get is of irritation, we shouldn't take that personally And we should absolutely be understanding about that and be okay with it. In that situation, people who look like me are very likely to have a minor meltdown and a sort of Darvo effect where they would deny that they intended offense, probably actually attack the person for getting angry, and then play the victim because they were treated so badly. Uh, Hey, I was just trying to be nice, and now you're getting mad at me, like... Screw you, I guess, I won't bother trying to learn your name. That is what people who look like me very often do. So if you pronounce someone's name wrong and they get irritated, it is much better to be understanding, apologize, and acknowledge that that must happen to them all the time and be quite frustrating. Then assure them that you would very much like to get it right. But that's the kind of reaction that a person could only reasonably be expected to have if they had an understanding of this other person's lived experience. That they must very often deal with people mispronouncing their names and that that would be frustrating for them. And so gaining that kind of understanding is exactly why I played that clip on the show. And it is with that knowledge that we can know to react differently than we otherwise might. As always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991 or by emailing me to j at bestoftheleft.com. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and their participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio Ben, Ken, and Scott for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, Webmastering, and bonus show co-hosting, and of course, thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at slash support or right from inside the Apple Podcast app. That's how you get instant access to our impressively good bonus episodes, in addition to there being extra content and no ads in all regular episodes.